Um, so good morning. My name is JT. If you're new to Freshwater, my name is JT. I'm one of the pastors here at Freshwater. So thankful that you're here today. So thankful that I get to preach today. I didn't preach for two weeks in a row, which was like the first time in a year or two. I didn't preach two weeks in a row. So I'm really kind of dying to preach today. So good luck to everybody. Um, I'm going to give it all I got today. And so if, if you're new to Freshwater, we've been walking through our series on the book of Exodus. Obviously, we just read from the book of Exodus. And if you haven't been here, here's, here's very, very quick where, where we've been. Um, so far, we've seen God's people who were slaves in Egypt cry out to God for the deliverance, and God answered. And so God sent Moses. And so through Moses and a bunch of miracles, God delivered them from Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at the time. And not only that, he destroyed the most powerful army in the world when they came after, um, the, they came after the Israelites, after they let them go and tried to kill them. And God destroyed that army and save them. And so since then, we have seen the Israelites come to the mountain of God, come to Mount Sinai. They've seen God's presence come among them in fire and lightning and smoke and thunder. We've seen God speak to his people delivering the Ten Commandments. And then we've seen the people actually agree to follow God's covenant. And in the end, the covenant really was to follow God's law and to worship God the way that he says he is to be worshiped. They agreed to this willingly. We most clearly see what the covenant is represented very simply in the Ten Commandments, right? And so we talked about the Ten Commandments. And then for the last few weeks, we've covered like, I don't know, a bunch of chapters, like ten chapters, right? But in the last few weeks, what we, we've seen is just chapters filled with God's law, God's specific law for the Jewish people at the time in particular. And then we've seen a lot of just intricate details about what the tabernacle is supposed to look like, be like, and how it's supposed to be run. The tabernacle, which will later, later be the temple, which is where God's presence will dwell among his people on earth. What we've really seen the last eight to ten chapters is a, a picture of God's holiness. A picture of what it looks like for us to be holy and then what it means to rightly worship God. Because that's really important to God. We've even talked about it this morning, right? I was talking with TJ and Brandon about how we even do things at Freshwater. We want to make sure we rightly worship God in the way that, that he commands us, the way that he wants us to worship him. And so that's really what God's been laying out for his people. This is how you follow me. This is how you worship me. And so today... We're about to jump into something that, you know, we just read. Something that people have been basically shaking their heads at, including me, have basically been shaking their heads at for almost 4,000 years. To read a passage like this and say, how could God's people, like the God's people who God has just done miracle after miracle after miracle to save, how in the world could they so radically turn on him so quickly? Like, how in the world could that happen? How in the world could this be? And so today... Um, here's my hope. Here's my hope by the end of this that we'll clearly see that we're really not all that different from them. We may look, look at the story and think, how could they do that? I, well, I would never do that. But in the end, we're really in no, we're no less rebellious. We're, we're in no less need for someone to intercede on our behalf because of our sins and the way that we have failed. And what I'm really hoping is that by the end, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see this and just think about God's wrath or the crazy things that happened. But by the end of this, man, you would really seek more clearly who God is and your hearts would be drawn to him and worship a deeper worship than, than before, even through the story of the golden calf. So that's where we're going today. But before we jump back into verse one, I want to give you a little context because Moses went up the mountain 
in chapter, I think it was chapter 24. That was a long time ago, right? And so now he's getting ready to come back down. But everything in between was Moses up on the mountain. So let me give you a refresher about where we are and kind of the context. So back in Exodus 24, it says that Moses went up the mountain before God. It doesn't say that the people knew how long he was going to be, he was going to go up there. I don't think Moses knew how long he was going to be on the mountain. He ended up being there 40 days and 40 nights. So he was up on the mountain with God for a long time when God gave him all the law and all of the details about the tabernacle, right? So the, the people basically just think that Moses disappeared. And we can see that at the beginning of the passage. They didn't expect it to play out this way. So I want, I want you to think about that for a second. I think that when we read stories like this, we don't actually stop to think. Moses. The guy who has been with them every step of the way. Moses, the guy who literally speaks on behalf of God. God speaks to Moses and then Moses goes before the people. At one point it even said that you'll be like God to, the, to, God to him when he's talking about Pharaoh. So Moses is representing God to the people. They know about who God is and what he's doing because of Moses. Moses, the guy who has saved them when they have gotten in enormous trouble again and again and again. It is through Moses that God has saved the people. Moses, the guy who has settled every major dispute among the people, and Moses who has taught them what it means to rightly follow God. The man who literally represents God to them has now disappeared for over a month after being with them every step of the way. Can you, considering what they've been through, can you imagine that? Put yourself in their shoes. He's been with every step away. It's just been a few months and radical things have happened over the last few months and now their leader seemingly is gone. If you add to that, these people have just left the only place they have known, the only culture they have known for the last 400 years. Stop and think. Again, I always say this when we talk about 400 years. We're not going to just say that flippantly. Think about how long 400 years is. Think about where our country was 400 years ago and how how our culture has changed and how, enrooted, how rooted we are, we are in our culture, right? They have just left the only culture, the only place they've known for 400 years. A place not only that, but they were slaves. They've never governed themselves. They've never ruled themselves. They've never decided what they were going to do on a day-to-day -day basis. Not in the way that we do, right? They were slaves for a long time. And now they have been set free, but they're wandering in a desert that they don't really know where they're going. They don't know where God is taking them, and now they're at this mountain because Moses had led them here, but they don't really know how all this is going to play out. Not only that, but they've been attacked by two really powerful nations. Not only Egypt, but another a nation attacked them, and the only reason they were saved is because Moses held up his hands the whole time. Remember that story? Moses held up his hands. Moses' hands came down. They started losing the battle. The only reason they've been saved is because of God, but God threw Moses in both occasions. He parted the Red Sea, and then he held his hands up. So they would be destroyed at this point without God and without Moses. So all of that, put yourself in their shoes. Moses is gone. They're in the middle of the desert. They don't really know what's going on. So when they react in fear, when they react with something that they know, when they act in kind of what we might call a ridiculous way, I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying that it's okay. I'm, but maybe we can have a little bit more understanding as we walk through this, right? If we don't think like an American put in that situation, but we think about a, a former slave in Egypt put in that situation and how freaked out they might, they might, they might have been. Because yes, they have seen miracle after miracle after miracle. Yes, they have. But they are also way further out on a limb. They are way more dependent on God to literally save their lives than most of us would even ever want a whisper of. Am I right? 
So seeing that, I feel like that gives us a little context going into chapter 2 to maybe see it a little bit more clearly how their, their fear, their insecurities, their past, their culture, and hear me, their selfishness caught up to them in just dramatic ways. So with that context, let's read back in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 in chapter 32. Chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It's crazy, right? So the implication in the Hebrew, which is the language this was written in, the implication in the Hebrew is that they gathered around Aaron in, in anger or at least some hostility, right? That they weren't happy with Aaron. They were not happy with their situation. And, and honestly, they weren't happy that Moses was gone. And so it seems as though a mob mentality started to kind of take over. Now, I don't know from the passage, I don't, I don't think we necessarily think like every single Israelite betrayed Moses and God, especially the, Le- the Levites. We're going to see later the Levites seem to be faithful at least, right? But the majority of the Israelites kind of gave over to this mob mentality and kind of confronted, confronted Aaron and said, hey, make gods that will go before us. Or another way of saying that, go before us, means to lead them, to protect them, to be their gods. Now, again, this might seem insane after everything that God has done for them, that they would demand something like this of Aaron, Moses' brother and their leader. But I think maybe in, for some of us, it seems a bit more insane that Aaron would listen to this. Like the brother of Moses. How could the leader who's, who's been a part of all that God did, who was standing there when Moses confronted Pharaoh, was there speaking with, with Pharaoh too? He's seen all this stuff. How could Aaron lead them into this madness? Well, I think there's two things that can help us understand this a little bit more clearly. Here's, here's, the first one is this. Later in this chapter, in verse 22 through 24, we're going to read it next week, it seems that Aaron was at least a little bit afraid of the people and their evil intent, right? He gave in to their evil demands. That's what he says to Moses. It seems like he was a little bit afraid. They think Moses is gone, and, and Moses was always, or Aaron was always able to, to, to lean on Moses for his leadership, like for Moses to make the hard decisions, for Moses to confront the people. So whether Aaron was afraid for his life, or whether he was afraid for his reputation, or whether he was a little bit afraid of losing control and everything falling apart and not being, being able to lead the people like Moses did. Whatever the reason was, instead of standing up to them like Moses would have, like Moses is going to, Aaron gives in. Aaron gives in to the pressure of the people. That might seem insane. But do we ever see leaders in the church do that today? It may feel less dramatic than this one, but does that ever happen today where leaders of the church kind of give in to the people's demands to what they actually want instead of doing what is biblical, what is godly, what is the right thing? It happens all the time. Leaders giving in to what is popular rather than what is biblical. That's how you draw a crowd. That's how you get people to love you. Yeah, it still happens all the time. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing that helps us understand is, again, just remembering the history of this. They come from a culture... 
And really, hear me, we've talked about this before. Really, the entire world at this time worships multiple gods and worships idols. It's just simply how the world operates in the ancient world at this time. People worshipped physical representations of their gods that they felt like carried the essence of their god. They were able to see, they were able to touch, they were able to come into what they thought was the presence of their god, at least the presence of their god in some small way. But the true God, the one God, Yahweh, has told them, listen, I'm spirit. I am the I am. I cannot be captured in an idol. So literally, he gave them the second commandment to say, don't create idols because I'm not like those weak, false gods. I cannot be captured in an idol. I am everything. I am everywhere. I am beyond any of those things. You worship me in spirit and in truth, in faith, not by sight. Listen, that's radically different than basically every other religion, every other faith, every other God in the world. So they came from a place where they could see the gods. They could go directly to what they felt like were the gods. And they lived in a culture that worshipped and brought sacrifices to multiple gods, multiple idols, idols, so they could basically cover their bases. I'll make sure this god's appeased, and this god's appeased, and this god's appeased, and this god's is appeased, so I'll be blessed. Let me, cover, uh, let me cover all the bases so I won't be cursed, and so my life will go okay. Again, I'm going to bring this up in a second, but I saw, we literally saw this play out in India. This is how they worship gods. The ones they think that could curse them or bless them, they make sure that they are appeased. This is the world they come from. This is the world that they know. So if we really try to see that the way that God is asking them to worship is completely foreign to a lot of them, to the culture they came from, and really foreign to the entire world at this time, we begin to understand how they might longed for what they knew in a time of fear. Does that make sense? This is what they know. Yes, a lot of them were Jews, and we seem to, it, it seems that they still held on to their history, but everything in the world surrounding them pointed to the opposite of this. So in the time of fear, they, they actually ran to what is normal. I think when a lot of us read this story, we react real viscerally with a, 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 just a big reaction to it. Because like, how in the world could they do this? Because our normal is completely different than their normal. You follow me on this? doesn't excuse it in any way. Of course it doesn't. But it gives us a little bit more understanding how this extreme of, of a rebellion could have happened. On top of that, you had Moses disappearing. And we can at least begin to understand why they might have wanted to run to a golden calf. So Aaron makes the golden calf. And the people say, these are your gods. It's seemingly a completely abandoning Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And in some ways, that's exactly what happened. They absolutely abandoned God. They absolutely abandoned Yahweh. But here, I, I think maybe not completely. Yes, but maybe not, maybe, maybe, not completely. Read, I'll show you what I mean. Read in verse 5 and 6. Chapter 32, verse 5 and 6. It says this. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the what? Capital L, Lord. You know what word that is? Yahweh. I looked it up. That's the, in the Hebrew, that's the word Yahweh. He's talking about God there. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings, which is how you atone for sin to God, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play, which is exactly how you do things in pagan culture. You go to the idol, you make your sacrifices, and then you dance and you party, which is the opposite of what God asks us to do in our reverence of worshiping him. So if we're going to really understand what's going on here, I think th these two verses are key. 
Because again, I'll say this again, in some ways, in a lot of ways, they have absolutely abandoned God for idol worship in the old ways of Egypt. Yes, that's absolutely true. But at the same time, who does Aaron build an altar to? The Lord. Who's he saying this feast is for? The capital L, Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, right? And so that's what they're going to do in the tabernacle. They're going to build an altar before the Lord. And they're going to have a feast, like when they bring the burnt offerings and they feast, before the Lord. So even though they are absolutely participating in pagan worship, non-biblical worship, Aaron and, and maybe, seemingly, the people are still in some twisted way including God in that worship. Does that make sense? Again, I said I was going to bring this together. We, we, when we share Jesus in India in particular, this was one of our biggest fears. That there would be people that had seemingly accepted Christ. Like, accept him as their savior, believe the story, said they wanted to follow Jesus, yes and amen, we were pumped about that. But then they would go back, we would find out later that a lot of times they would go back and then include Jesus in the culture that they grew up with and, and, and kind of include him in the other gods that they worship and honored. Right, because if you remember, I, I said this before, when I was in India, being Hindu and being, India, being Indian for most people was not different. If you were Indian, you were you were Hindu. If you were Hindu, you were Indian. And so when people abandoned their Hindu faith, they, for, for the, from some of the families, they gave up being Indian. Does that make sense? Their families would abandon them because you've abandoned who we are. And so what would happen is they would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, at least seemingly. We thought they did. It seemed like a real experience, but they just brought it back to their culture, to what they knew, and they, they just kind of brought him in with the other gods. I think a lot of them still held— they, they still held Jesus as the Savior, as God, as the God above all gods, but they kind of just brought it in. We call that syncretism. It's one of the biggest fears because we would see people that seem to genuinely have an experience with God, but worshiping one God alone was so opposite of their entire culture and everything they knew, it was really hard for them to actually walk in it day by day among their culture and with their families. See how that would be difficult? It's not weird for us. Really difficult for them. That seems, at least in some way, to be what's happening here. They're trying to bring God in with the culture they know, with the way they want to worship. They're, they're kind of bringing it all together. So, people debate this, right? What, what's really going on here? So, whether they have completely abandoned God, completely, and, the, and they're worshiping false gods, breaking the first commandment, or whether they're trying to, to, to worship other gods, but also bring God into that and create an idol of him, the golden calf representing God, breaking the second commandment. Either way, they, they have absolutely followed the way of the world, and they have broken God's covenant completely and fully. And Aaron, one of their spiritual leaders, meant to protect them, had le has led them straight into it, has led them straight to destruction. Church, again, I'll say this again. This, this, we read this story, and it may seem a little shocking, but again, don't we see pastors and churches do the same thing today? Giving people just enough Bible to cover their basis and for it to feel and seem godly, but then giving them a whole lot of the world woven into their sermons, woven into their worship, woven into their churches so that they might appease people in the way that they want to live or how they want to worship and, and, and do what pleases him instead of what pleases God. I can't tell you now over the last few years how many conversations we've had about the current state of worship music in our country, right? That, that most worship music is about you, about how you feel and about your experience and about you feeling good and about God being your friend above everything else instead of worshiping a holy God. 
About two years ago, we changed the way we did worship. Well, I don't know if you noticed, we always started our first song with who God is. Not how you feel, not how I feel. Feelings are an important part of worship. I'm not saying they're not. But we make the worship about us instead of God. And that's what's so scary. It slips in a little bit at a time. We make us primary instead of God primary. And over time, that completely derails us. It's happening in the churches now. We get a whole lot of the world and just enough God to make us feel like we're going in the right direction. It seems like that's what's going on here. And in an extreme version of that, yes, it's extreme. But it seems to me that's what ha- is happening here with Aaron. He fears the people more than he fears God. And it's leading them into destruction. It's leading them to destruction. And that still happens today. I think there's a lot of people and a lot of, hey, there's good churches out there. I'm not knocking the church as a whole, right? But there's a lot of people in churches that think they're Christians and they're not. And their leaders are leading them to destruction because they want the things of the world more than they actually want God. But let's not put all the blame on Aaron because God doesn't put all the blame on Aaron. God is going to hold the people responsible for their treacherous actions. Read in verse 7. Chapter 32, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people. He didn't say my people, if you notice. Go down for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Remember, it wasn't long ago at all that the people willingly agreed to follow God and his covenant. And even though they have experienced Probably what no one has experienced before, maybe other than Abraham, but I don't think Abraham's experienced things they have. And honestly, what almost no one has experienced since, even though that's true, they have broken God's covenant, they have corrupted themselves, and it took about a month. It took about a month. That's why when people say, I've said this before, I'll say it again, when people say things like, man, if I could just see God, if I could just see him do a miracle, if he could just do this thing, then I would believe, then I would follow him, then I would know. And I think there's a part of all of us that want God to show us truly who he is, and that's okay, right? But if you ever think, if God would just prove himself to me, then I would be faithful, then I would love him. Not true. We see it over and over again in scripture. They had the most amazing things that have ever happened to them, and they lasted a month. Because it's not about God proving himself to you, it's about Love and faith, genuinely loving God, the greatest commandment, and following him in faith, that's how God reveals himself to us, through a, through a relationship, through knowing him, through trusting him, through worshiping him in the way that he calls us to. That's how we get to know God. That's how we trust. That's how we stay faithful, not miracles. Miracles are great. Jesus did miracles to prove who he was. But in the end, it's about faith. So here's the reality. They wanted God's blessing and protection, and he had given it to them. But they're proving right here that they also wanted it their own way. That's why God calls them a stiff-necked people. That means a rebellious people, a stubborn people, a people who want things their way instead of God's way. So here's the tough thing. 
This just proves that they are self-absorbed, self-focused, self-destructive in their sin. And what they really want is self-worship. Do you know what I mean when I say that? They want, what they really want is self-worship. They didn't want the I am. The God of the Bible. For who he actually is. For who he says who he is and how you're supposed to worship him. They wanted a God that they could see. A God that they could touch. A God they could experience in the way they wanted to experience for their own comfort. Because they wanted their own way. God literally warned them against this exactly. This exactly, specifically, told them, do not do this thing. And when they let their fear take over and their selfishness take over, it's exactly what they did. It's self-worship. It's not worship of God. And in, a distort, in, in their own distorted way, maybe they did want God. They'd seen what he's done. They saw how big he was. He had rescued them. In their own distorted way, maybe they did want at least some of God, but they also wanted the world's way more. They wanted the world's way more. And we do the same. Do we not? At least at times, do we not do the same? We want God. I think for most of you in here, you actually do. We want God. But we also want our entertainment, when we want it, how we want it. Even entertainment, movies, TV shows, whatever, that, that probably has nothing to do with holiness or godliness. In fact, they're the exact, what, what you see and what you engage in for hours and hours is the opposite of what God would call holy. Not even on the line, right? But the opposite of what God call, called holy. But God, don't ask, don't ask me to stop that. I love you, but, I, but you don't know how much I love this. We want God. We do. We want God. But, but we also want to hold tightly to our money. And the things or the comfort or the control or the peace of mind that deep down we probably think only money can give us. We want God, but we also want the lusts and the desires of our flesh. We want God, but we don't, if we're honest, we don't want him to ask us to get truly uncomfortable or do the hard thing for his sake. We want God but we don't really want to go out on a limb for him. We want to play it safe. We want to be comfortable and we want to be safe. Man, we want to follow God, but God, don't ask me to go out on a limb. Don't ask me to give up this thing. Don't ask me to go to this place. Don't, don't ask me to give this time. And we don't really want him to expect us to be holy. I've said this before. I think we're at a place, church, that most of you that have been coming here for a long time, you do want to walk away from your sin. You do want to follow God. But in the end, I don't know that most of us actually want to, want to be holy and what that might entail because you're so afraid of what you might lose if you actually had to walk in holiness. And I get it. I've been there and I'm still there at times, right? I have to fight and I have to war against that too, just like you do what it actually means if we walked in, not we were good examples to a, a world around us, but we walked in holiness. We want God, but do we want that? Because that's the call. That's what worship is really about. Worshiping a holy God as he helps us to be holy. Books in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, books in the Bible like Galatians would call this the desires of the flesh. 
If you ever want to understand how the law and how the Old Testament plays in with New Testament believers, I think Brandon quoted it the other day, go read and study and really dive into Galatians. It'll help you understand how the law and all of this ties together in Jesus Christ. Galatians is an amazing book if you want to understand the Old and the New together. But what Galatians is going to teach us is that we can't have the desires of the flesh and seek God. We can't do both at the same time, for they are opposed to each other completely. And I think we know this. I think you know this. I think I'm not saying anything new, but this is something that we don't take seriously every single day. It's either holiness or sin. There's not really a middle ground. You are moving towards holiness or you are moving towards sin. There's not this like middle ground that most of us live in. That middle ground doesn't actually exist. You're going this way or you're going that way. That's it. It's holiness or sin. It's godliness or worldliness. It's either flesh or spirit. It's flesh or spirit. We can't worship God rightly while still having the world wrapped tightly around our hearts. And, and it may look different now, and it does look different now, but that is exactly what's happening with the golden calf. The world and their selfish desires have infected and corrupted their worship. And it's corrupted them. And what was God's response to that? He tells Moses because of their sin, because they have broken their covenant with him, he's going to consume them or destroy them all. If you've ever wanted a clear picture of the seriousness of sin, if you've ever wanted a clear picture of when, in Romans 6, what, when it says the wages of sin is death, if you've ever wanted a clear picture of that, this is it. This is your picture of how serious this actually is. God says, let me alone, Moses, so that I may consume them. Now, did God mean it when he said he was going to consume them? Did he mean it? Of course he did, right? God doesn't make idle threats. But, did you see how he seemingly left the door open for Moses there? He says, leave me alone so that I might consume it. It's almost like God is saying, and you read this for yourself. You, you, you see if you think it's saying this. It's almost like God is, is saying, hey, Moses, if you don't intervene, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill everybody. I'm going to start over with you. Which, by the way, might have been kind of flattering for Moses. In some ways, it's horrifying, right? It's absolutely horrifying. What they're doing is horrifying after what they've been through and all that they've seen. That they turn like this on the God of the Bible. It's all just horrifying. But at the same time, it might have been a little bit flattering to Moses. Listen, Moses has also been absolutely betrayed. They have turned on him. He has given everything for them. And they have not been good to him most of the time, right? He's given everything for him. They've primarily turned on God, but they've turned on him too. I mean, can you, can you imagine what it must have been like for Aaron to hear this from God? Moses, this is what they're doing. I can't imagine how that must have felt. And I'm thinking, at least there might have been a part of Moses that this might have been kind of flattering for. Right? God says, I'm going to kill all of them because I can start over with you. Because Moses is from the line of Abraham. He can keep all the promises through Moses. It's going to look a little different, but God's will can still be accomplished. So it might have even been a little flattering. But how does Moses respond after being betrayed so deeply? Look at verse 11. Chapter 32, verse 11. We'll finish out our section of this with this today. 
But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he, God, bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Even though he was deeply betrayed, even though God makes this potentially even flattering proposition to him, Moses intercedes on behalf of his people with three pleas. One, don't let their sin negate the glory that the world has seen by you freeing them. Two, don't let Egypt have the satisfaction of seeing them destroyed and being able to say that with evil intent, God, you brought them out into this desert. And third, remember your covenant promises to Abraham and his sons. Remember what you promised to do with the people and with the land. Moses is basically saying here, listen, not for me, Lord, and not for them, but for your sake, for your glory, for your name, relent. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and asks God to relent from disaster. And what does God do? He relents. And look at it. It wasn't a perfect prayer. It wasn't some perfectly eloquent prayer. It was simply a faithful, righteous man who loves the Lord, who has a relationship with him, crying out to God on behalf of sinful, undeserving people so that they might be saved. And what I love about this And what I have held on to for years is the God of the universe actually listened. He listened. He heard and he answered. Because of the intervention of one man, God showed mercy and grace to those who were fully undeserving of it and the people were saved. It's beautiful. It's amazing that this happened. So the question comes back to again, I'm going to kind of ask the same question again. Did God really intend to destroy them? I think we have to say absolutely yes. That God did intend to destroy them because not only because God said it and God keeps his word, word, but it says in other places like Psalm 106, that Psalm 106 makes clear that, that without Moses interceding for the people, God was going to destroy them. So we have to believe that's exactly what was going to happen. At the same time, at the same time, Did God know that Moses was going to intervene for the people? It's a tough question, right? Did he know? Of course he knew, right? He's God. I think we have to say yes because he is God. He is sovereign. So in the end, was it God's will that saved the people or was it Moses interceding for the people in prayer on their behalf that saved the people? Which was it? Yes. Yes, I think the answer is yes. God meant what he said, but he also knew what Moses would do. Right, that's tough, right? That's tough, but that, that, I think that has to be our answer. This is the beautiful thing about God, and this is the beautiful thing about how God interacts with him. He's so big, he's so far above us. Some of these things we just can't completely wrap our minds around, right? But this is the beautiful thing. He is a God. 
He is God, and he does not need us to intervene for people to be saved. He does not need you for people to to be saved or for his plan of redemption to come to fruition. But, but, he invites us in. He invites us to be a part of it. He invites us to talk with him, to commune with him, to have a relationship with him, and to ask of him. Hear me. He's a father that wants you to ask. He wants you to come. He's not the distant God on high. Look how he interacts with Moses. Look how here he is. Like he wants you to come and talk to him. Talk to him. And the, the word shows us again and again and again that your prayers matter. That your prayer, even though he's sovereign, your prayers matter. That our prayers affect things. Now, how does that play out with God's sovereignty? You ready? I don't know. I don't have it all figured out yet. Right? If you've got it all figured out, come and talk to me. Because there's a big bit of debate about that for 2,000 years. But here's what I do know. I know that I can take comfort in the fact that God is totally in control. That God will always do the right thing. That God will always do the good thing. And whether I nail it in my prayers or get it wrong or whatever else, God is always going to do what's right, what's good, because he's a good father, because he's holy, because he loves us, because he's God. And he's going to do the right thing in his sovereignty always. And I can have peace in that. I can take comfort in that. I don't have to be God. I don't have to have the perfect thing. I don't have to always know because he does. There is peace in that. Can you imagine if everything was dependent on us praying the right things all the time? the world would be a disaster. So we can just trust the Lord that he's always going to do the good thing. But at the same time, at the same time that being true, I can find peace and strength and hope in the fact that he hears my prayers and he answers them. That he actually hears them and answers them. That my prayers, like Moses's unbelievable prayers, matter. That they matter. Your prayers matter church. My favorite part of this story, though, is seeing Moses stand in the gap for his people to do for them what they were obviously not going to do for themselves. Listen, I don't know if there's a clear, a clear story in Scripture that shows how much they didn't deserve it. Like how, how much they didn't deserve. They had betrayed God. They had betrayed him. They were selfish. They were self-focused. And they had acted in treacherous ways. Not just sinful ways. Treacherous ways. Yet Moses still stood in the gap for them. Church, I love it. The example that this leaves is amazing for us of what it really looks like to show true grace and mercy and forgiveness and humility no matter what. But I also love this for what it points to. For this, is this not exactly what Christ did for us? Is it not exactly what Christ did for us? God's wrath for sin is so clearly portrayed in the story, isn't it? You can just so clearly see the seriousness of this. And here's the truth. We have given our hearts to the world. We have idolized things. We have all worshipped in ways that in the end were mostly about us. We're mostly about what we wanted. We're mostly about what we wanted to do. We have been selfish even in our worship, yet Christ still interceded for us. He still interceded on our behalf. He still cried out to his Father, Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they do. 
That's who our Savior is. That's how he intercedes for us. To not only pray to his Father on our behalf, but to give his life on the cross so that his Father would not just forgive one really bad moment, like what's happening in Exodus, in Exodus but that so that he could, with, by his blood, he could pay for all of our bad moments. All sin for all time, because he stood in the gap for us. That's what this is pointing to. The true prophet, the true priest, the better the one that was better than Moses, that was better than Aaron, that was the fulfillment of everything they represented. Because here's the, here's the thing. Here's the, the truth. We have all been the Israelites worshiping the wrong thing. And at times, we have all given our hearts to the wrong thing. Yet our Savior not only stood in the gap for us, purchasing our forgiveness on the cross, but as Romans 8, 34 says, who is to condemn Condemned, to be found guilty. We are guilty, but it says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Because even though if you're in here and you're a believer and you're saved and you love God, we still don't always do the right thing. We still don't always pray the right thing. We don't always think or say the right thing. But the only one who could ever truly stand in the gap for us, the only one that could truly bring redemption is at the right hand of God right now interceding for his people so that we might not ever again, listen, might not ever again live as people condemned in our flesh, condemned by our sin, but set free from our sin, set free from that condemnation so that we can live in the grace and the mercy and the love and the peace and the hope of being called the children of God. We are set free to that. That's what holiness is, church. I say it all the time, but I need to believe it more, and you need to believe it more. Holiness is freedom, because in holiness comes true peace, true hope, true freedom. God's not trying to hold you back. He wants to set you free. The world and our culture is lying to you that these things are going to make you feel whole, make you feel good, make you feel like you have purpose. They are lies. God wants to set you free in his holiness through your Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, but because the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is in you, like Moses, we can stand in the gap for others because of who God has made us. Because you might not be able to save anyone. And listen, Moses didn't actually save anyone. He was simply willing to cry out to God on their behalf because they weren't going to cry out on their own behalf. He cried out on their behalf so that they might be saved. And we can do the same, church. We can do the same. Don't get tired of doing the same. The Israelites acted terribly. And there are going to be people in your life that are going to act terribly. They're going to do the same. They're going to betray you. They're going to walk away from God. They're going to do, listen, the sinful thing. But how are sinful? How are sinners going to act? Like sinners. Why are we surprised when they act terribly when they don't have the love of Jesus Christ within them so we can stand in the gap for them? And they're not going to deserve your forgiveness. They're not going to deserve your prayers. And they certainly don't deserve God's forgiveness. And because of that, listen, they are bound for destruction. But you can stand in the gap, church. You, you can cry out to God on their behalf. You can beg for their salvation. 
And you can do it not simply for their sake. Of course it's for their sake. Man, my family members and friends that don't know Jesus Christ and are bound for hell, of course I don't. I want them to be saved. I want them to be in the family of God. I want, to, I want them to be children. I want us to be true forever family together. Of course that's true. But we're not simply crying out for their sake. We're crying out so that God's glory might be seen through his redemption of them. Through God loving them and changing them and creating in them something new so that they can be called children of God that now carry his light too. Follow the example of your Savior who interceded for you, not only so that you could be saved, so that you, that, so that you might do the same for others. To be a light to people lost in this dark world. As scripture says, to be a city on a hill for people who can't find their way to shine, to radiate the glory of God as the children of God in the, amidst a twisted generation. To be redeemed people that intercede for the lost and radiate the glory of God. That's who you're called to be. That's where your joy and your hope is actually found. That's, that's what it means to walk in holiness. So church, let's leave behind the ways of this world and listen, truly worship God for who he is, not who we desire him to be, but for who he truly is. For the holy, righteous God, worthy of our praise, worthy of all our praise. And then let's be like Jesus and let's stand in the gap for people. Let's be like Moses. Let's be like our Savior and stand in the gap for others so that they might be saved too, so that they might know this Savior too. I love you, church. Take your worship of God seriously and then stand in the gap for others because your prayers matter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for passages like this because I think sometimes we forget the seriousness of our sin. We forget the seriousness of breaking your laws and your commands. We take those things lightly, but God, we see in your word that you do not take them lightly. But God, I also thank you that, that you came, Jesus, that you came and you saved us to show that, that our sin, our breaking of the law can never be bigger than your grace if we just believe. Seeing that seriousness, God, shows us how enormous your grace and your mercy really is like what an offense this is to you yet you will forgive because you, because you are a God of love and mercy and grace and you want us to be in your presence God it's amazing it's amazing that, that you're this God thank you for not giving us what we deserve thank you for not giving us what's fair but for giving us grace God, I, I pray that you would help us. Help us to actually long for holiness. To believe it's better. To believe the things of this world are not better. The things that we fill our time with or whatever else, God, just whatever else gets in the way, whatever worldly things get in the way of us truly living our lives as a living sacrifice to, to worship you with every aspect of our lives. God, help us because, man, God, it is hard but we know you're bigger and you're more powerful, so God, help us. What a weird prayer. Help us to worship you rightly, but we need you, God. And then God, help us to never get tired of standing in the gap for others. I know we have family and friends that we've prayed for, and we've forgotten to pray for them. We've, 
We've forgotten that we can consistently stay and beg you to save them from destruction. And so God, help us not to grow weary. Help us to keep asking, to keep begging, to keep standing in the gap for others so that we might see you save them. God, thank you that you listen to our prayers. Thank you that you're listening right now and that you're with your people. Help us to do the right thing. Help us to pray the right things. Help us to intercede in the right way. And then help us just to trust you with everything else. Trust that your sovereign will will make all things good, will make all things right, and we can place our true hope in that. Thank you most of all for being our Savior and making us your children so that we might spend eternity with you and with each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.